Welcome to the Mama Bear Apologetics Podcast. A podcast where we teach you to roar like a mother. And by roar, we mean recognize the message, offer discernment, argue for a healthier approach, and reinforce these ideas with your kids. Unless you want to growl around your house. I mean, that's cool too. <laughs> You're like, check it. We keep it reels. <laughs> that's so bad. You're awesome. Mama Bear Apologetics is a listener-supported program, so if you like what we do, head on over to the Mama Bear Apologetics website and click support. It's time to rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Before we begin this episode of the Mama Bear Apologetics podcast, a few quick notes. First, if you have a home that the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus frequents, you might want to make sure that there are no little ears listening. We don't want to reveal any of their secrets. And secondly, I realize that this is a pretty heavy topic that just happens to fall right on Thanksgiving week. So after this, we're going to keep it a little bit more lighthearted for a few weeks for the holidays and then return to our study on Dawkins in January. And finally, Mama Bear Apologetics has been in operation for over four years and we've never fundraised. And while we are so pleased by the number of people who are tuning in for each episode and each blog, we just have a quick ask that if Mama Bear Apologetics has made a difference for you or your family or your ministry, would you consider remembering us for your end of the year tax deductible donations? It's super easy. You can just go on over to the Mama Bear Apologetics website and click donate. Our ministry really has far outgrown volunteers, and we love serving in the way that we do. Because this is kind of what I've discovered, that when you equip the moms, the dads get interested. And when the moms and the dads are both interested, the kids get interested. So in essence, you equip the mom and you equip the whole family. So please help us keep going and to keep growing. So without further ado, here is our discussion part three on the Richard Dawkins book, Outgrowing God. And welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary. And I'm Amy. And so today we are continuing on with Richard Dawkins' book. And we're going to be kind of taking some of his main, I don't know, should we call them complaints? Yeah, I would say that main themes of each of the chapters, complaints, I mean, they're somewhat synonymous. The complaints just sound so negative. His main beef. Yeah, yeah, we'll just call it the main beef. So which chapter are we in right now, Amy? Is this chapter four? We're in chapter four. Is God really good? Is the main theme uh, of that one. Is the main theme of this one. So this idea of, is God really good? The, the theme that we saw kind of being carried throughout this is just any kind of death that was perpetrated on behalf of God. So this would go along with uh, the Canaanites. It would go along with, what other examples did he use? Oh, Noah. Yes. But uh, two of the main things that he really focused on, which is going to be the focus of this podcast, is the idea of child sacrifice, <laughs> because he's kind of trying to make the argument that God was like, all like, hey, go for it when it came to child sacrifice. And this is actually one of those things that, you know what, if, if this was the God that we serve, then I would absolutely agree with atheists that we should turn away from the, that God. Would you agree with that, Amy? Yeah. Yeah. And his, yeah. his point, too, for bringing up these, uh, these stories here. And Noah and that sort is because he comes from the standpoint that from this view, so our sort of view looking in through scripture, that we are capable of determining whether or not God is actually good, much like you would do that if you were watching a movie or he references Lord Voldemort, Darth Vader, uh, Moyarty. <laughs> and so he's he, I, it would be interesting to see how many fictional characters he inserts in this book. He has talked about Robin Hood, Zeus, Thor, Darth Vader. I'm sure Santa Claus is in there somewhere. It's like, it would be interesting to just see how many fictional characters he references, because that that's kind of the theme of this whole, at least the first section, is that God is no real. Oh, he, I think the Easter Bunny, the yes. Tooth Fairy. Has he mentioned <laughs> the spaghetti monster yet? I mean, uh, I don't know. That, I don't think I don't he's, think he's gone done there that yet, yet, although I, I, won't, I wouldn't be surprised if he does. It's like, I think enough kids don't know the flying spaghetti monster, so he's referencing the things that they do know to emphasize this is no different than these other you know, fairy tales. And so he's like, really, you know, repetition is the source of implantation, I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah, he's hitting the uh, whole sci-fi spectrum when he's drawing from <laughs> analogies. So yes, and we'll use that in scare quote analogies. <laughs> <laughs> We're being very generous. 
So yeah, so that was kind of his main point. So we're really going to camp out on this idea of did God advocate for child sacrifice in the Old Testament? Because there's two stories in the Old Testament that I really could see. If you only read it as if the Old Testament is what we call prescriptive instead of descriptive. Prescriptive meaning this is what you should do versus descriptive, this is what happened. Those are two very, very different things. And in fact, I think he references in chapter five that you know, these are people that, you know, that the Bible is a collection of people we're supposed to look up to. And I'm like, eh, not really. I would consider it more a story of God's faithfulness and a story of people who go from one failure to the next. Yes, and his faithfulness to them, despite their failings. Despite their failings. So, if, if we're looking for the stories of what happened as prescriptive, as opposed to what God actually prescribed saying, do this or don't do this, you're going to get a really messed up view of what the Bible is actually teaching. And so I don't think it takes like a lot of hermeneutics to figure that out. Again, this kind of goes back to our first podcast where I think he got stuck somewhere between nine and 16, which is when he started down his faith. And when it comes to, you know, despite what he's done in evolutionary biology, when it comes to studying theology and and religion, it really has not progressed past that of a, a nine to 16 year old who has a couple of arguments and then just doesn't dig any deeper. I'm just going to take it at face value and I'm not going to try to see what it's actually saying. It reminds me of a debate my husband did with a guy named Matt Dillahunty and it was at Texas A&M. It was about uh, 400 people there. And I think that the topic was, is, is God good? Is that recorded? Like, is that something that could be listened to? Yeah, it is. In fact, uh, I'll recommend that uh, we put that in the podcast notes, a link to John Ferrer, Matt Dillahunty. I think it is God good. But one of the things that I think during, I can't remember if it was during this one, he's, he's debated Matt Dillahunty several times. But one of the things that Matt Dillahunty actually said was, John said, do you care about the context? It's, I think the thing that Matt Dillahunty was, was camping out on was slavery. That's one of the things Dawkins goes to actually in chapter five, which we might need to address because I think that's kind of a, Another a big, big challenge. Thing. Yeah. But John's got a really good presentation on that, explaining kind of the historicity of that. But he asked him point blank, do you care about the context and do you care about the history in which this was written? And Matt Dillahenny said, no. And John said, then you don't care what it says. Yeah. Yeah. If you take context out of it, then you can twist it to whatever you like. And that is one of the unfortunate tendencies that you do see at times with folks who are atheists and who are tackling scripture is they don't exactly give a fair presentation on what the argument is. It'll be very biased, it'll be twisted. And you do see that in Dawkins' book to where if you weren't very familiar with your Bible and you were just reading Dawkins' summary of what happened with Abraham and Jephthah and that sort of thing, you, you would be on his side totally. But again, it's because there isn't that, that context there. There isn't that background. Yeah, and I would say, I, I wouldn't even call this an atheist thing. I think this is a people thing because we see this happen. I, I think the Christians can fault atheists for this, but the atheists can rightly fault Christians for this. That's true. There are enough Christians out here or out there that do the, the same thing. And that's kind of one of the things we're trying to really combat in Mama Bear Apologetics is how do we think through this and present people's ideas fairly? And thankfully, since Dawkins kind of almost caricaturizes himself so that we don't <laughs> actually have to exaggerate when we say what he's saying, we just quote what he said. We're going to be talking about, you know, did God advocate for child slavery in the Old Testament? So here's, a, here's the two main stories that we're going to go through today. The Abraham and Isaac story and a story about a guy that a lot of people don't know named Jephthah, who basically made the dumbest vow to God ever made. Yeah. <laughs> Hands down. Yeah, Hands down, the dumbest vow ever. So before we go into this, it's, it would probably be helpful to look at what God actually said about child sacrifice, because in both of these stories, it's one of those things that you're kind of drawing from inference rather than God commanding things. So let's see what God actually said about child sacrifice. So in Jeremiah 32, 35, it says, when it says they, it means the Jews, they built the high places of all that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I had not commanded them nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So basically, we're going to be talking about what the ancient Near East gods were like and how common a practice this was and how Israel and and, uh, Judah was kind of seduced into doing the same thing because they started following the other gods. And God's like, not only have I not commanded it, 
it never even entered my mind to command it, which I think is going to be important for the, for the Abraham story. And then the second one would be Leviticus 22. And it says, tell the Israelites, any Israelite or foreigner living in Israel who gives any of his children to Moloch must be put to death. The people in the land are to stone him. And I will, which of course Dawkins would have, he has a beef against stoning. And I will set my face against that man and cut him off from his people because by giving his offspring to Moloch, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. So this idea of child sacrifice in Jeremiah 32, 35, he says, is it absolute abomination would have never entered his mind to ask. And then not only is he so against it, but he says, if you do this, the death penalty is is sufficient or what's the word I'm looking for is, is appropriate. Yeah, it's very appropriate. It's just, we cannot tolerate this in any extent. So we're going to kind of go into what was going on with the ancient Near East gods. But first, let's talk about, so the evidences that Dawkins is using is from Abraham and Isaac. So do you think we should just kind of read part of the the passage that where it would appear that this is what God was saying? Yeah, we can read that. uh, Let's see, I've got it open right here for, this is found in Genesis 22. All right, so starting in 22.1, it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moira. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, and I will tell you, or or mountains that I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When they had cut through or cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay your hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. So I can see where someone who just reads that could see like, oh, God wanted him to sacrifice his son, and then he changed his mind. We want to point out a couple of different things. First of all, in verse one, it says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. So let's talk about this idea of testing. Is uh, is testing a bad thing? So what did you find when you looked up the, the word testing in the Hebrew, kind of some of the connotations it had? So it was really interesting looking up that word testing, because it can mean two different things. It can mean to tempt, and to prove as well. And by proving, that means to sort of prove something as solid, as reliable, that sort of thing. You see this word used uh, at times by Satan, testing or tempting, but that's tempting into sin. But with God, it's to prove this faithfulness. Now, sometimes people may live up to that, as in the case of Abraham, and other times they may be proven to fall short, as in when... And then you have the hot mess that is the rest of yes. <laughs> the Old Testament. Oh my gosh, yeah, <laughs> and it's And then a they cycle. did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's practically like an Old Testament drinking game right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. And and yeah, and so you see um, you see it used, or God uses this in times to prove the faithfulness of his people, and sometimes they do. They, they live up to it, they do great, pass with flying colors. Other times, like with David doing the census to sort of, you know, get his own pride up and everything, you see him falling short. So yeah, you do see it used in the same or in the different context, but this doesn't mean that constant challenge of, oh, well, God's tempting me to sin. No, it's not that. It's God's proving to prove faithfulness. And as you mentioned earlier, before we were talking before here, it's God also proves his faithfulness. So I thought that was, uh, that was really interesting when you were looking that up and seeing there. 
one of the things I want to address is this idea of people be like, well, golly, that's kind of a jerk move to make someone prove themselves by sacrificing their son. Because I can understand how like in our 21st century, that would be pretty bad. But this idea of testing, one of the things that I noticed is that so many times in the Old Testament, God proves himself. Now, when I looked up the word, the, the Hebrew word for testing right there, there's a bunch of verses that talk about not to test the Lord, kind of Exodus 17, 12. Why do you test the Lord? In Numbers 14, 22, where it says, you have put me to the test. In Deuteronomy 6, 16, you should not put your Lord, your God to the test. So all of these are talking about we are not to test God. And so people might say, well, that's not fair. It's like, if, if he's allowed to test us, why can't we test him? Think about this in terms of an authority role. I just want to say, very rarely in scripture do I find God or Jesus asking his people to do something that he's not willing to do himself. And I think that is a really important theme. In fact, it talks about, uh, which, which verse is it where it talks about, we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but has basically gone through all the exact same trials that we have. Yeah, it was the whole purpose of Jesus being tempted out in the desert was to show that he he has been able to call people to his standard that he's been able to pass himself. Yeah. So it, it reminds me of just this idea of God puts himself to the test over and over again to prove his faithfulness. But when you look at all these verses saying, don't put the Lord to the test, it's inappropriate if you think of an authority versus subordinate position. Like, let's say that we have a boss who wants to test us to make sure that uh, we are capable of the job that we've been hired to do. It is appropriate for him to test us. It is not appropriate for us to turn around saying, I want to test you. But what it would be appropriate to do is for that boss to prove himself to his employees. Yes. In different ways. So in, in, that, in that sense, it's like, if we want to put ourselves on equal footing with God, that right there is someone who just doesn't understand even the concept of authority. And if you have a problem with authority, then, I mean, that's a whole other issue right there. But it, to say that God is an authority, that he's a higher being than us, I mean, that's what you might call an understatement. Yeah. Especially a, an authority figure who's proven himself time and time again, faithful every single moment. It's just not, it just wouldn't be realistic to be like, oh, you got to prove yourself. Wait, he already has constantly. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, that verse that talks about, you know, will you give us a sign? I'm like, didn't you? And it's like the people, I think I'm not hundred percent sure. I think the people asking for the sign were the same ones who had just seen him feed the 5,000 the day before. And so it's like, what signed? I mean, were you not here yesterday? <laughs> were you um, I'll attention? have to double check on that one. <laughs> so something that my pastor has said about this that I think is also important for the idea of testing is he says the heart cannot follow what the will cannot obey. And I think that is really important because this isn't just, this is basically what's going on with cognitive behavioral therapy is that people are having emotions that are coming from either thoughts or actions that they're doing that are not consistent with them or that, that are inconsistent with the emotion they want to have. For example, someone who maybe struggles with depression, maybe they're not taking care of themselves. So their mind is saying, you're not taking care of yourself, therefore you must not be worth anything. Interesting. Or getting into abusive relationships and staying in that abusive relationship, it's your, your brain is coming to the conclusion I deserve this. So this idea of testing isn't just, you know, say to prove something, but the idea of testing is actually to increase someone's belief because when you put your money where your mouth is, you're actually more likely to stick with it. And which brings me to a quote that was in from Creation to the Cross. Creation to the Cross is, is, is a really great book that talks, it's basically it's a really readable survey of the Old Testament. But one of the things that I like that the author said in here is, it appears God wants to do more with Abraham than drop promises on him. Abraham had received an irrevocable promise from God, but being God's candidate for blessing is not a trip to Disneyland. Because God is going to bless Abraham, he's going to make him into a man of faith. And then again, it says a couple pages later, Yahweh tests them as he tests all. Not to tempt to sin, but to cause increasing recognition of his ways. So that one right there, I think, would actually kind of apply to what's going on here, which is that I think part of the purpose for what he's doing is, you know, number one, to test, which we talked about why he's testing, because he's dropping some pretty serious promises on Abraham, which we'll talk about in a bit, but also 
to recognize what he has explicitly said in the Old Testament, which is, I will never require child sacrifice. It is an abomination to me. No, absolutely. And I think an, another thing that's, that's worth pointing out here too, is when we're looking at the story of Abraham in this setting, you know, he had had to wait for 25 years for this son that he had prayed for. And now he's gotten that. He's, he's got God's fulfilled promise right there in front of him. And then when you look at the scripture, it's important for God to now say, okay, look, you've been given this blessing. Now I want to make sure that you are going to remain faithful, even though you've already received that, that reward there. It's this, this second, this sort of refining and this proving theme that you see throughout this story. You know what this kind of reminds me of? And this is kind of a really silly analogy. Did you ever see the movie? It was like back in the 80s. You might be too young for this. It was called Brewster's Millions. No, I haven't ever seen that one. (laughs) (laughs) I doubt many people have. It's got, I think it's Eddie Murphy that's in it. So the the storyline behind it is he has some some distant relative that had no other other children. (laughs) Wait, is this like the Nigerian phone scam? (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) No, it's um, it, it was it was a legit thing. So he he starts out as a homeless guy. Oh, um, and I think uh, Dan Aykroyd and oh somebody else play the lawyers. So he's about to get dropped this mega mega inheritance that's like I don't know, it's like six hundred million or Gee, something like that. Crickets, that's a lot. Yeah, but what he has to do first is he gets thirty million up front, and he has to spend all of it without having anything to show for it. Interesting. So he has to give it to charity. No, and I, I think that was, I, th- it made it so that he had to actually spend it on things. So like one of the things that he spends it on is like, oh, but the, the clincher is he's not allowed to tell anybody. Oh, interesting. So basically it's like nobody can know, the lawyers know, but nobody else can know. And he's required to just spend money like crazy. Basically people thinking he's an absolute idiot. I, th- I think the point is to show how quickly you can blow through that money. And of course the, the movie makes it like, you know, it was so, so much harder to do than it seemed. You know, there's so many ways that you could do it that would have been super easy. But, you know, you have to have somewhat of a storyline there. So one of the things is he buys like a really rare stamp and then he mails it. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it gets stamped. It's like one of those ones where it like printed the you know airplane yeah. upside down or something. So it's this idea of this testing with one thing in order to provide more later. But having to prove himself faithful of having people talk badly about him, seeing how how quickly money could get blown. I, I guarantee he's probably a lot more, once he realized how quickly you could blow 30 million, I bet you he was going to be a lot more careful with the 600 million or however much it was. It was to make a point, not that this is what you should do. It's more like this is what can happen. I see. And I think that's exactly what we have with God going on here is because child sacrifice was really rampant in the ancient Near East. So we read this through our, our 21st century lenses and hear God say, well, you need to sacrifice your son. And we're like, that should have been causing red flags immediately, unless you were already in a society where that was normal from the deities, which as we'll go into that, that was the case. But here's another place where he, God explicitly forbids it. In Deuteronomy 12.31, he says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. And by there, he means the, this is when they're going to be going and taking the different lands. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. So this is a third place that we see God explicitly forbidding this. So this concept of, it's almost like a kind of performance art in the sense of, I'm going to show you what not to do, and I'm going to show you that I would never ask you to do that. And what's neat is when you read it too, you, you also, if you're looking at the passage and the phrasing and the phrases that they use, your only son, offering him up, you know, you can see this allegory between the promised Messiah that's going to be and how Isaac wasn't going to be able to fulfill that. I mean, there's so many parallels, uh, as you mentioned before we started, about even Isaac had to carry the wood and that can be somewhat like how Jesus had to carry his own cross. It's, yeah, it's really interesting. I want to give a plug for the, the, the Jeannie Jones and Pam Farrell book on this one. It's in the, their Bible study called Discovering Jesus in the Old Testament. And that was one of the things that they pointed out in this story is when it says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. That phrase, only son, is kind of a similar way that talks about Jesus, where God calls him his only begotten son. And this idea of only isn't the concept of only like as in one, because obviously he says your only son, he's got another son. He's got Ishmael. Right. 
So that can't mean exactly what it means. It means that this is a unique son. And it's, he's unique in a, in a way that this is your only one like this. And so, again, that would go to if, if people have wondered, you know, where they call Jesus God's only begotten son. But then it also talks about sons of God in the Old Testament, I think a lot of times referring to angels. The fact that Jesus is the only begotten son is the same kind of phraseology here as your son, your only son, which, they, which he actually says twice in this passage. So that would be also a, a, another reason for doing this is this is something called typologies. And a typology means that it is just the word itself can kind of have a lot of different meanings. In, in studying scripture, typology usually refers to something that is a type of Jesus, where it's foreshadowing. Because you see Jesus say several times that basically the whole Old Testament was pointing towards him. And so this should have brought some people should have said, hmm. When they see your son, your only son, that would have raised a red flag. So when they heard that phrasing later, saying, this is my only begotten son and with whom I'm well pleased, that should have triggered that story because they knew these stories by heart. So this is one of the places that's foreshadowing. So yeah, but also Jeannie Jones points out in the book how Isaac was the one carrying the wood for the sacrifice. It's like uh, Dawkins makes it seem like Isaac was this terrified little boy going, what's happening? What's happening? He seems really calm, but a couple other things we want to point out that show that God is not commanding child sacrifice here. So number one, we have God tested Abraham, which we've dis- discussed the idea of testing. But when he sets out, when it's like he takes his servants, it's like a three-day journey. And then at one point he says, the boy and I are going to continue from here and we will come back. What verse is that in? Uh, that's in four and five. Yeah, it says, uh, st- well, specifically five, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and we will come back to you. A beautiful example that even at the, that whole, th- I mean, and that had to been an awful three-day journey. Like I'm sure Abraham, <laughs> there's just so many things going on in his head. Like, oh Lots my gosh. Lots of thinking time there. <laughs> there's no Pandora to listen to. You know, but I mean, he did, he, he knew from the very beginning, look, God's going to provide. So we're going to go, we're going to worship, but you know, we're both going to come back. I mean, what a statement of faith. Yeah, absolutely. Also pointed out the fact that I think Abraham was like over 100 at this point, and we're not 100% sure how old Isaac was, but basically if he's like eight years old or, or more, if he can handle a three-day walking journey, the kid's got to be old enough to be able to basically run away from his father. Well, and the amount of wood it would have taken too to yeah. sacrifice, because I mean, you had to build a fire large enough to sacrifice a ram. And if you've ever been around a farm or a petting zoo, you know, that's, you would need a fairly large fire. So a good amount of wood and he carried it up the mountain. So obviously he's old enough to be able to handle that. Yeah. So this idea of him just being scared and terrified, what's going on, it's like, it kind of shows Isaac's faith as well in his submission to what's going on and maybe his belief that what his father said was true. We are going to come back because when he asked, where's the, where's the sacrifice? He said, the Lord will provide, the Lord will provide the, the lamb. Oh, and something else that was pointed out in Jeannie Jones's book, which I thought was interesting is the idea that the Rams horns were caught in um, basically what is similar to what the crown of thorns was made of. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I thought that was just kind of fun. Well, and one commentary too pointed out, Isaac's meekness, like he, he's just going, he's faithful as parallel to Christ's meekness to going toward the cross. And so it's just neat. You just see all these ties. So in summary, on, on the Abraham story that we have ancient Near East gods that r- required child sacrifice, and this is actually the culture that he came out of. So this wasn't a crazy request, but at the same time, you could tell Abraham knew that God was different because he didn't believe for a second that he said, the Lord is going to provide and we, me and the boy and I will return. And some people speculate that he maybe believed that he, if he sacrificed Isaac, that the Lord would raise him up from the dead. So he was still willing to go through with it if that was what the Lord commanded. The idea of, of testing is this idea of being able to prove someone faithful. And when you're going to, when God is dropping the kind of promises on Abraham that he was dropping, you need to have someone that you can trust. Cognitive behavioral therapy says that our heart can't follow what our will can obey. So this was part of the Lord testing him, which is appropriate for an authority to do us to a subordinate, but not the other way around. However, God has always proven himself. He has chosen to prove himself. So he doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't done himself. And then we have verses that we talked about where God explicitly, I think there's three that we talked about, that God explicitly forbids child sacrifice. So I would say all that, the argument that this story is an example of God advocating for child sacrifices is not a good argument. 
or to even support the argument that God is somehow evil or mean is no, there was purpose. There was design in this. If there hadn't been any of that purpose, that telos in there, then, you know, yes, God would have seemed a little wacky, but no, there, there was a, a whole design to this. And yeah, it's just, it's neat to see. And to kind of be fair to Dawkins, one thing that he did bring up, which is something that I still struggle with, is the story of Job. And that is actually one that I still struggle with. And it might take us a little more study to realize how to answer that one. But that one is, I can't totally find the purpose for that one. I don't understand it. But this is one of those things where when I have hard questions and then I discover an answer, if I have enough experiences of that, that when I encounter a hard question, that's when I can have faith that there's probably an answer to this. If I didn't have history of having good answers to tough questions, then there's no reason for me to have faith that that one has a good answer. But I would say just historically, and this is something I probably couldn't have said in high school, the more I study, the more I discover good good answers to these tough questions, the more I can actually have faith on the ones that I don't understand because I have a history of those being answered. So anyway, I want to I wrap that up and go on to the weird story <laughs> of Jephthah. Yeah, I think this one's an a neat one to compare with Abraham, because I think you do see that nice contrast between this prescriptive versus descriptive. Yes. And so, and, and you're going to see that there are some things that Jephthah does that are totally different from what happened with Abraham, completely unnecessary. And uh, we're going to see that here shortly. Okay, so moving on to the story of Jephthah, which is a much lesser known story, which we have lovingly described as the dumbest vow anyone ever gave to God. <laughs> yes. And it starts the way that I kind of joke. I always joke about drinking games just because I think it's funny. Like when something's repeated, I'm not actually doing a drinking game to anything. But so our like joking Old Testament drinking game here is comes from Judges 10, 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. <laughs> it's just a this constant is, theme. Oh my gosh. It's a constant theme. It's just like this preference, uh, this preface to like every stupid thing that happens. So this is what they did. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served them, served him, he became angry with them. Dawkins is going to make it sound like, oh, God's just like, you know, jealous. Oh, they're serving someone else. And I'm so mad. But we got to look at what these gods were doing and the two really, really strong themes that we see throughout everything is basically child sacrifice and sex, which ironically kind of have a tendency to go together. So let's talk about what these ancient Near East Eastern gods were like. Ooh, can I interrupt and just jump back just a quick second? Because I think it might be a good thing to just quickly point out that there's a difference between righteous jealousy and unrighteous jealousy. Mm. And that's one thing that Dawkins really blurs through his book is he just thinks, oh, well, if God is jealous, then he must be, you know, just that one girlfriend, you know, who is just, you can't talk to anyone. You can't even look at anybody or else I'm going to fly off the handle. But that's, that's not the case. If you have a, if you're going to a party with your husband and all of a sudden one of these gals comes up and she starts flirting and being a bit ridiculous toward your husband, you're going to have jealousy, but that's not an inappropriate emotion. That's a, that is an important emotion to have. That's your husband. And just like with God, you know, it's his jealousy for his people is a righteous jealousy. And so him being against bad behavior isn't something that's contrary to his nature. And I think that's important to, to understand, especially when it comes to things like jealousy, wrath, anger, that sort of thing. Those are righteous in certain contexts. Yes. In my Old Testament class, I'm listening to the lectures and I love how kind of just deadpan dry this guy talks, but he was talking about the difference between that righteous jealousy and the dumb jealousy. And he was like, some people think of jealousy as, you know, if, if someone even talks to someone, you know, my boyfriend even talks to someone of the opposite sex, that is not the biblical view of jealousy. That's just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the exact phrase he used, but it was really funny. He's like, that's just a crazy person. It's just a crazy person. Yeah, it is. Yes. So that is not the kind of jealousy we're, we're talking about here. But why would God be jealous? So <laughs> why would God be protective of his people for serving these other gods? So let's take a look at some of the, the gods. So the first, the first one we're going to look at, it gave us kind of a long list of the different gods they were serving. So Baal is kind of like some people say Baal, some people, I think the usually the Hebrew scholars I hear Baal, so I'll say that. 
that was kind of an umbrella term for kind of the god of that region. But then there's also specific gods that are mentioned. But a lot of times the same gods are going to be mentioned under that kind of umbrella term of Baal. So let's look at what happened with Elijah with 1 Kings 18, 27 and 28. This is where basically God has been like, you know, basically, what's that line from um, Sweet Home Alabama, where the, the father tells the daughter, you can't ride two horses with one butt, sugar lump. Oh my um, gosh. But they, he doesn't say butt, he says something else. So basically, it's kind of a pee or get off the pot kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the God's tired of them serving the alls and pretending, you know, paying lip service to him. So Elijah basically has that showdown that says, okay, we're going to see who got, whose God is the real God. And so let's look at how the prophets of all try to get their God's attention. So it says in verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them saying, shout louder for he is a God. Perhaps he's in deep thought or occupied or on a journey, which fun fact, the, the living version translates that into uh, perhaps he's on the toilet. <laughs> so I like the fact that they, they make deep thought and occupied toilet. I mean, makes sense for men. But. Yeah, if, if you have a tendency towards sarcasm, you might see this as biblical validation that your sarcasm's acceptable. <laughs> Preach. Okay, perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. Yeah, there's a lot of sarcasm going on here. So they shouted louder and cut themselves with knives and lances, as was their custom, until the blood gushed over them. And you thought people dancing with snakes was weird. <laughs> so this idea of God being a jealous God over them, it's not as much of like, my feelings are hurt, you're worshiping someone else, as it is, this is bad for you. And I don't want to see this happen to you. If the way they worship their God was, was like slashing themselves to bits, as was their custom, let's just say that that's not a God I would want my people serving. So anyway, and moving on to the two verses that we read before, which is Jeremiah 32, 35, where it talks about they built high places of Baal and caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I had not commanded, nor had it entered my mind. Again, this is what the other gods were requiring. And again, Leviticus 20, where it talks about sacrificing your children to Molech. All of these things is God is, these are the gods that are surrounding them. He's, people are causing their children to be sacrificed. So moving on to this verse six. The gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, Ashtoreth, Moab, gods of the Ammonites. Who were these gods? So one of the major ones was Ashtoreth. And so you'll, you'll see this in a lot of different ways. It'll be Ashtoreth, Ashtart. What are some of the other variations of this name? Well, it kind of depends on the region because even in ancient Egypt, Ishtar, there was that as well. So there, the goddesses, the names would kind of change a bit, but sort of their purpose and their function was the same. It was, especially when it comes to Ashereth and things, it was fertility. So you would, if you were going to worship, you would go to the temple and you would pick out a priest or a priestess and y'all would get busy and that was your worship. And that was, and she was a fertility goddess, goddess of war, that sort of thing. And so that is how you worshiped and tried to secure fertility was you would go and, and serve that way. Mm-hmm. So I think some, some of the ancient Near East literature that I've read kind of refers to, they thought that what would happen is the God would look down on these two people getting busy. And it would, since they thought that the laws of nature were based on the God's capricious natures, that when they saw people getting busy, then they'd think, oh yeah, maybe I should do something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make their land more fruitful. <laughs> and that really was the idea, or I'm going to help them have more babies. That was the idea behind it. Whatever it is, it's this idea of basically having sex is the way that you worship. So I'm just going to say probably a lot of religious men back then. <laughs> yeah, right. So, and you can see how that would, and you know, gosh, Solomon was even torn astray by this. And you could see how that would be tempting to folks who are more, you know, when sensuality is, is very appealing and very attractive. So you can see how people would be led astray into this. And I think it's really interesting that this kind of goddess of sex and this god of sacrificing your children go hand in hand because you know what? What happens when you have sex is you have babies. So what do you do with all the extra babies that are born to these temple prostitutes? Well, let's sacrifice them. And so it's kind of this closed system there that, again, I think we should be able to see this is not the kind of gods that the Lord wants them to serve. Yeah, it's this desecration of creation. I mean, when man and woman were created, it wasn't until woman was created pro-women. That he that God said, you know, this is very good. My creation is very good. I mean, the, we are the image of God. So to have the sort of worship that desecrates that image, that Imago Dei, is just so counter to his nature. And I think this also goes along with the, 
I can't remember what, I think it's the book Hosea that has the word whoring. <laughs> More than any oh other gosh. book I've ever read in my life, they've gone whoring after their gods. They've been whoring this, whoring that. It actually makes sense why he would use that phrase, because not, not only is it being unfaithful to God, so it's like if we are, if we are kind of his people, we're you know, the bride of Christ. And, well, I mean, Christ wasn't there yet, but in the sense of we're covenanted to him as in kind of representative of that marriage relationship. Being with other gods would be a sen- sense like being unfaithful. But secondly, there's literal whoring going on here. Whenever you serve those other gods, so much sex was involved, they were literally whoring themselves out. So I don't think it was just a turn of phrase. I think it was both figurative and literal. So anyway, some of the other gods mentioned here, Sidon, uh, the gods of Sidon, that was Jezebel's hometown. Jezebel is one of those names that I don't think I've ever heard. No matter how many bad names I've heard, I don't think I've ever heard someone give their kid the name Jezebel. It's just, it's too well known. I mean, for, for that strict purpose. I mean, even if you've been, if you've ever read book The Handmaid's Tale, the building where they had prostitution that the, the commanders could go to was called Jezebel's. And there was a reason for oh. that. So, uh, so, I mean, it's just this name that's synonymous, not only with just evil, but also with, you know, prostitution, which you could see tying into their, their idol worship. Also, so Jezebel, that was where Elijah with the prophets of Baal that were like slashing themselves. That's her hometown. That's who they worship. So that's that tie in. The god of Moab, this is Chemosh, and this is the same god as the Ammonites. And they have archaeological evidence of human sacrifice, which we will provide in the show notes that showed that, yeah, child sacrifice was going on there as well. The gods of Aram. Here's an example of the god of um, Aram, and which I think is in the same area as Eden. Edom in 2 Kings 3, 26 through 27. Oh, wait, no, this is Moab. So we're going on to Moab, sorry. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their land. So this goes to show the, the king of Moab. It's such a common thing that he sacrificed his own son. Yeah, destroyed his lineage. Yeah, destroyed. Well, I'm sure he had more. Right. But it's still that that firstborn son was considered the pinnacle. And then the Ammonites, they also serve Molech, who is the god of child sacrifice. So these are the gods that God is trying to prevent the people from worshiping. So the backstory, so again, we're getting back to, we needed to go into the ancient Near East gods. So this, the backstory for Jephthah, which is the second example that uh, Dawkins really harps on, is that Israel was worshiping other gods. God removed his hand of blessing and gave them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites who oppressed them. Israel repents and one of their military leaders makes a really stupid vow that ends up in the killing of his daughter, supposedly, quote unquote, to God. So we, we read in Judges 10, 6, the Israelites did was evil on the side of the Lord. It talks about all the gods they served. And God just sort of turns them over to the gods that they were worshiping. I mean, they were worshiping the gods of the Philistines and the Ammonites. And who were they conquered by? But the Philistines and the Ammonites. So he just says, all right, if this is who you want to worship, let them save you. And we see that that isn't what happened. I think that is interesting. The people oppressing them, they decided to start worshiping their gods. I'm sure we can find a lot of modern day analogies and parallels to that. So Judges 10.10, 10, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you for we have indeed forsaken our God and served the Baals. Yep, they've been doing that. So Jephthah, the story behind him is he was the son of a prostitute. And so all his other brothers kind of rejected him. You know, you're, you're not really one of us. You're from another, you're a brother from another mother <laughs> who happens to be a prostitute. But when the Israelites are crying out to God saying, please help us to basically defeat the people who have been oppressing us, they go back to Jephthah and they ask him to be their leader and he accepts. And so in chapter 11, there's a lot of, it's kind of like, and then he said, and then he said, it's all this talking that's going on between Jephthah and the kings around him. And then we get to the dumbest vow of all time. Although first, no, let's, let's talk about what you pointed out. So if we're in Judges eleven thirty through 40, I like what you pointed out. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah and Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. So the thing that you pointed out was God was already with him. That spirit of God was already with him. So imagine, though, that you have been used to serving the Baals and all these ones that require really horrible things from you. So here's our, our dumbest vow of all time. So after the Lord's already with him, then in verse 30, Jephthah made this vow to the Lord. 
If indeed you will deliver the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out of the door of my house to greet me on my triumphant return from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Gosh, you know, part of me wonders if he was just trying to be like, well, look at how faithful I am. Because here the people had cast him out and they were all fine with kicking him out until they realized he had a skill that they could use, mainly him being a warrior. And I wonder if part of his motivation was, you know, well, let me just show how faithful I am to maybe, I don't know, win some of these people over. And I just got to wonder because the way he reacts later. So what happens in verse 34? So, you know, then he, he, he does win the battle. The Lord was with him. <laughs> and when, when Jephthah returned home to Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to, to greet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He had no son or daughter besides her. As soon as Jephthah saw her, he tore his clothes and said, no, not my daughter. You, you have brought me to my knees. Again, this is God's fault. You, oh wait, no, he's talking to the daughter. It's her fault. It's always the woman's fault. You have brought me to my knees. You have brought great misery upon me for I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. And again, she's actually pretty, she's good with it. Yeah, she's kind of chill about it in the sense of, so, I mean, there's a kind of a, a beauty in submission, but at the same time, but, you know, again, remember, this was the culture that they lived in, that the gods did require this, which is exactly why the Lord said, don't worship their gods. So she said, my father, you've given your word to the Lord, do to me, as you have said, for the Lord has avenged your enemies. Then she went off and she kind of mourned for a while and came back and he sacrificed her. So the question that Dawkins has in here, is this an example of... God being cool with child sacrifice. Or even just in endorsing it. Yeah, I would say that this is a massive face palm. I think it's one of those things where as soon as he made that vow, I can, I can picture God just doing this massive face palm and being like, oh my gosh, like seriously, I've got so many other places where I committed not to do this. So I think one of the, the main things in here also is the fact that Jephthah tried to serve God in the way that he served the other gods. And basically, the Lord allowed him to suffer the consequences of his own stupid actions. Hmm. Well, and they had been warned, too. I mean, in Mo uh, Numbers 30, Mo when, he was, when Moses was talking to the heads of the tribes, he was saying, you know, don't, don't take oaths just to don't be willy dilly with them. I mean, they're, they're very serious things. So they had been warned about the seriousness of this, which you actually see in his daughter. It almost seems like Jephthah's sort of looking for a way out, and she actually encourages him to be faithful with his vow. She's like, no, you need to carry this out. Give me two months to mourn my virginity, but then you need to do what you told God you were going to do. Yeah, and I think there's also something to be said for words are, are binding in a certain way that I don't think that we understand. And the, the reason why I think that is when I think back to the story of Jacob and Esau, how when Jacob tricks his father into giving him the blessing instead of Esau, and Esau is just begging him, don't you have more of a blessing for me? Don't you have more? And Isaac is just lamenting, no, I already gave my blessing to your brother. There's something that's binding about vows, which I think is also in, in the New Testament, where in the Sermon on the Mount, somewhere in Matthew 5, I'm not sure exactly where, where Jesus kind of says, or wait, no, it's in Ecclesiastes that you pointed out in Ecclesiastes, where he says, don't be hasty to utter a vow before the Lord come near to, to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And I got to imagine the sacrifice of fools is pointing back to this whole Jephthah thing. Yeah, it is. Well, and you'll see other verses too that is saying, you know, don't make these hasty vowels and va not vowels. This isn't a wheel of fortune. <laughs> vows. Uh, don't make these and then cry out, oh, I didn't mean it. I mean, you just see constant reference back to Jephthah. Like this was a really big mistake that he made. And it wasn't included to say, oh, yes, this is okay. It was referenced, this story was referenced as a, as a warning, as a message of, you know, here's a really bad thing that went down. And please, everybody else, learn from it. So again, this goes into the idea of a descriptive versus, versus prescriptive. This would be something that's descriptive. We already have multiple references in the Old Testament that God specifically says that human sacrifice is not something that he approves of, nor would he ask anybody to do that. And then we have this example of someone making a really stupid vow and the Lord just kind of not say anything. It doesn't say, oh, and you know, and the sacrifice was sweet to the Lord. It doesn't say anything about that. It's just like, this is what happens. So this is a descriptive, not a prescriptive passage because there is nothing in this passage 
that tells us this is what we should do. But if we look at other scripture, which you have to interpret all scripture from other scripture, that's why we do systematic theology is we don't pick just one verse. If if you just pick one verse or one passage, you can justify anything from the Bible. Because again, a lot of the Bible is about people making stupid decisions. And so if, if you're going to use that as like every example in the Bible is telling me this is what I should do, then you don't understand the concept of history. It, made up stories always have a moral. Non-made up stories tell you what happened, even though the people were dumb. So that would be kind of our discussion of did God advocate for child sacrifice in the Old Testament? I think when we look at it in regards to the whole of scripture and we, when we look at it into regards of what's actually happening in these stories, we can say, no, God is not advocating for child sacrifice. This is something that your kids might bring up to you. And so I hope some of the discussion here is helpful on how to address this with your kids because they will hear this from their friends if their friends have been reading any of these Richard Dawkins books. So, well, Amy, would you like to pray us out? Father God, we're thankful that your word is such that we are able to grow, to learn, to understand more about your nature and more about just even the failings of people who follow you so that we can grow from that. These these stories in here are messages of faith, of rewards for faith, but also of the implications of free will and poor decisions. And Lord, we just pray for these parents that they can go out, that they can raise up their kids who are going to be skilled with handling the sort of truth, that they're going to be able to discuss and engage and be slow to speak and quick to listen and be able to pour into those around them who maybe have heard some of these challenges from Dawkins or other folks who may have faith on rocky ground or maybe not even be a believer at all, but think that, hey, I've got this knockdown statement that we're, is going to wipe out Christianity. They, they can have kids that can stand up and say, no, actually, there's more than what you know. Then we thank you, Lord, for these moments because we know that every time that we listen to this and we study these passages, that you're going to be putting folks in these people's path that they're going to be able to wrestle with, that they're going to have opportunities to strengthen their faith muscles, as well as to go out and be those witnesses that you call us to be. In your holy name, amen. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. We hope you learned a little more about how to sift through ideas, accept the good, reject the bad, and now you can go teach your kids to do the same. Do you have any questions or maybe some ideas about future podcast episodes? Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we'll do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, mama bears. We are all in this together.